Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo hosting solo today, and we're doing something interesting. We're going to do a little kind of Seneca short. Over the weekend, there was a terrific piece by uh, Lucy Hornby, who's a journalist for the Financial Times here. Uh, in her first contribution to the Financial Times magazine, she wrote a great piece on comfort women, and uh, I made a, a extra to carve out extra time to get Lucy on, and she's, she's made tremendous sacrifice, monumental sacrifice, to get it into the studio with us. So welcome, Lucy. I'm really eager to talk about this piece with you. Well, thanks, Kaiser. Uh, I'm making my own reparations because it's really... We're overdue to have you on the show. I mean, you've been, you know, knocking around Beijing as a journalist for so very long, and you're like one of the few that we've just been some, somehow unable. I mean, the stars have not aligned right, and you've not been here, but we're we're now making up for it. Okay, sounds good. How, how did you uh, get started? I mean, clearly this was timed. You timed this piece to coincide with, um, you know, this whole AIIB business. Um, comfort women obviously are very closely related to this, and as an agent of of of, of, of Anglo-American <laughs> imperialism, you were intending this to piece the sow dissension among the three Northeast Asian powers. Is that correct? Well, <laughs> you know, I think that there's no time in Asia where you could put out a story without in some way coinciding with some other thing that would lead to people uh, c- accusing you of having an ulterior yeah, so, agenda. This is, this is some, some weirdo in your comments section actually, uh, actually leveled that very accusation against you, huh? Yeah, they did. And uh, they said that we were, I was an, an agent of the U.S. government and that I was trying to derail tri-nation talks between China, Japan, and Korea with the purpose of undermining the AIIB, which I thought was completely absurd. So how do we know that you're not actually doing that? <laughs> no, no, seriously. How did, you, how did you get interested in this story? I mean, this is obviously, um, uh, it's, it's something that's been around for a while, but you got onto it and, and you were able to actually track down uh, one of the few surviving uh, comfort women uh, here in China. So how did you we'll put you onto the story in the first place? Well, um, you know, like many people here, I've been seeing stories in the China Daily, etc., about comfort women and always in the context of sort of anti-Japanese movements. Um, I actually reported on, I think, all three anti-Japanese parades that have happened uh, since I've been here in China as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have sort of an interest, but I also try to steer clear of anything that comes across as too partisan. Yeah, um, this is a minefield, huh? It really is, yeah. People yeah. people have very, very strong opinions about comfort women, and they almost always slot into your relative position on China, Japan, or Korea as well. Right. Um, so how did you summon up the pluck to brave this this dangerous thing? I mean, I look at these comments. I mean, there's predictably people who clearly think you're a tool of Chinese nationalism. There's people who clearly think that you're, like I said, a tool of some kind of American plot to, to, to scuttle uh, AIIB. Um, there's other people who think that you took too much to the side of the Japanese. 
Um, well, maybe that's a sign that you did a good job. <laughs> that, you know, it's well, I hope so. Dispassionate nature. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really didn't want to take any side of any nation nowadays, um, and uh, you know, it, it sort of had always been out there, but I had never really thought it was a story you could tackle, you know, without appearing to be way too partisan. Um, But what got me interested was um, last May, I don't know if your listeners would have been aware of this necessarily, but a Japanese ship uh, belonging to Mitsuyo's K was impounded in Shanghai uh, for payment of a war debt from the Second World War. Um, And that's obviously like 75 years, 70 years ago, sorry. Uh, And... um, that I reported on it only because I happened to be the morning shift person that week, but I ended up getting quite intrigued by the case and uh, also, to be honest, very skeptical at first. You know, who was the claimant was my question. Uh-huh. Uh, so I went into the Hong Kong corporate registry and ended up getting the phone number of the guy. Um, and it turned out it was totally legitimate. It was a family who had lost everything during the war. Um, and they had their ships on lease, you know, long story, but anyway, their ships were unleased on lease to a Japanese shipping firm and then were requisitioned by the Japanese Navy. Um, And so they, you know, that was their ship. That was the end of their ship. They had two others that were sunk by the KMT to try to stop the Japanese advance up the Yangtze. Mm -hmm. And so in 47, the KMT had paid them some reparations. Um, And so then they started after the Japanese. And when they fled Shanghai in 49, they took with them a slip of paper that was their original contract. Um, and so I actually interviewed the grandson. So this was a they three. They were in Hong Kong. So. Yeah, they had lived in Hong Kong. Amazing. So I mean, why didn't why didn't we talk about that story when it came? Out? That's, <laughs> that's 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 what a story that is. Yeah, I thought it was a very very interesting story, and it it kind of erased some of my cynicism because you know here was yes there was the China Japan thing, and then there was this underlying story of a family that just had their teeth in something and wouldn't give it up. And I think that kind of intrigued me because I'm the sort of person that has an attention span of maybe two or three hours. Um, and, you know, here's someone who has an attention span of three generations. My God. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was well, quite cool. So, you, I mean, you're going to have to actually provide a link for that story, too. Um, I think to everyone who's women, listening right. to this is going to want to wanna, wanna check out that story about, about this um yeah, sure, I'll send that to you. Um, but anyway, in the course of that, you know, we started looking into what other reparations claims might there be out there. Um, obviously, Financial Times, you know, this was viewed as a sort of corporate risk story. Um, so, And the editors were very supportive um, because they like, you know, stories that are a bit different. So in the course of that, I interviewed the leading um, reparations lawyer by phone, a woman named Kang Jian. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a month later, I just thought, you know, I'd really like to meet her because it's still, I was still just so puzzled by these people who, you know, were chasing this decade, decade long issue. Um, So I thought I'd, you know, meet her and kind of take her measure and see what drove her. And I ended up just being blown away by her sincerity and integrity and passion. Um, And this is a lady who has been the lead lawyer on the Chinese side for Japanese force, for forced labor cases in Japan and then these comfort women cases. Uh, and that just kind of started me down the trail of, you know, uh, the, the, these activists, um, which I felt was very, very interesting. These um, activists, I'm sure that they get routinely dismissed as just tools of, of Chinese nationalism, of, of Chinese state power, right? Uh, right. But, and that was one of the questions I wanted to answer for myself. You know, were they simply tools or were they pe- people with an enormous amount of passion who... Um, and, and I think that that's my ultimate conclusion, that they are people who have an enormous commitment and sense of integrity and humanism for these victims, 
But sometimes they kind of move in the same direction as Chinese, more anti-Japan nationalistic policy. Yeah, not surprisingly. Yeah. And at other times they're at odds. Um, and, uh, you know, they themselves, some of them seem to be very nationalistic. Others were actually um, very collaborative uh, in their dealings with activists in Japan who have similar goals of trying to um, unearth or open for discussion these sort of unhealed wounds from so long ago. Mm. This is a topic that, like we, we've said, is, is just fraught on so many levels. Um, I mean, even the terminology that's used... Uh, should we be using the word comfort women? Is that just supporting a, a kind of Japanese euphemism for what is really just forced sexual slavery? So that's a big day, debate, especially in the U.S. Um, I kind of decided early in the game that, you know, this is the term the Japanese use. It's the term the Chinese that's use. Right. I think it might be the term the Koreans use as well. Um, so first of all, respect that. And what is it? It's weianfu in Weianfu in yeah. Chinese yeah. and in Chinese, Japanese I'm, my Japanese pronunciation is probably not up to snuff. So, um, but so there's that. You know that it is the term that North Asians use. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, it's a very specific term for time and place. And so I thought that you know that way you don't confuse the issue with any number of other you know obviously egregious situations, but that are happening for other reasons in other parts of the world. Um, I felt that there was a certain value to having this using a term that was so specifically applied to this set of people at this time. Right. And it's also a topic that's really kind of crossed the ocean along with immigrant communities into North America. I know that uh, in the U.S., for example, um, there was a lot of controversy over the uh, Korean community, and I think it was uh, part of Los Angeles putting up a statue uh, commemorating comfort women. Uh, it, it's it's something that's quite divisive on, on college campuses in America, too, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of an issue that's been picked up in the U.S. Um, again, there's so many different political per points of view on this, and many times, depending what country you're in, you know, you bring to it your own experience, and I think these communities are bringing to it a bit of their own American experience as well. Right, it's very gendered, and it's very, right. Well, I mean, and right. probably ought to be thought of in, in, in those terms. Um, there were some people that you tried to talk to for this story who wouldn't even... Yeah, there was one one very leading uh, Korean scholar on this issue who's quite controversial, actually, in her own right. But, um, yeah, she basically said, I'm not going to talk to you because any exploration of comfort women in China is going to be so politicized by Chinese nationalism right. that it's not uh, it's not worth doing, essentially, or it's not of scholarly value. Um, but, you know, again, I just thought, well, it's interesting to me to see what happens in China, right? It's interesting these individuals experience in China, and it's also interesting to see how it's played out against Chinese history, the Communist Party, obviously, which has been ruling almost ever since the war itself, and, uh, you know, these activists operating in a Chinese state, which is very, very different from the uh, way it's being perceived or used in other countries. So I just kind of made the decision, you know, don't go there. Don't go into what it means in other countries. Don't go into the politics of other countries. Just focus on China. Sure. Narrowly look at China, um, which is a fair approach. Now, uh, I think what is very interesting about this story and what really kind of struck me about it is how difficult it actually is for these reparations activists. I mean, they have to thread something um, quite carefully. They can't go too far or they, they incur the ire of, 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 of the Chinese party state. Uh, it, it's maybe surprising to people that they, there, there are limits that are put on, on, on their activism. They can't 
you know, you've seen this in Diaoyu, for example, not just with the, the marches and, and so forth, but also with the flotillas that have been sent out. And, and this, I, on this show, uh, for I mean, maybe a bazillion or so times, I've, I've used this metaphor. I've said that uh, the uh, the party stands over this fire pit of anti-Japanese nationalism with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other. That any time they want, they can sort of whip up the flame, but they don't want it to to spill the banks and burn down the surrounding countryside or party headquarters more, more, um, right. more, more to the point. But, uh, yeah, I think that's a like... great metaphor. It's definitely the case. Okay. Um, and this is a good illustration of that, right? Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah. I mean, they, the activists themselves have gone through several stages and especially when they first, the movement sort of coalesced first in the nineties, it was viewed with an enormous amount of suspicion as being a front for pro-democracy Ah. Um, and part of it was that the trigger for the reparations movement was the visit of Emperor Akihito to Beijing in the very early 90s. And that broke China's diplomatic isolation after Tiananmen. Mm-hmm. I remember um, that. Yeah. <laughs> were you here? I was. Yeah, I happened to be here. Yeah. Uh, you're you're dating yourself, Kaiser. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but very proud of having been here back then. So there was sort of this subcurrent of, you know, if you're against Akihito's visit, you're also against what the party had been up to. Right. Um, and uh, and then, so the original efforts were, oddly enough, amplified by Voice of America or Radio Free Asia, one of the two, um, and played down by the Chinese system. Uh. Um, and, and so you kind of had this sort of toing and froing. Um, and one of the activists was sent out of Beijing to Qinghai so that he wouldn't disrupt the uh, the women's uh, conference, which you might recall in 95. Yeah, You're sure. probably here for that, too. Quite right. No, actually, I wasn't. I, I well, I was, <laughs> so there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they were so paranoid about disrupting. And so at the time, this was viewed as very, very disruptive. Um, but oddly enough, that women's conference was also when Kang Jian, the lawyer I just man- mentioned, she got on the case because ja- a delegation of Japanese women, Japanese lawyers, uh, I'm not sure they were all women, but anyway, Japanese lawyers formally asked the Chinese uh, Women's Lawyers Association, anyway, mm-hmm. something like that, uh, formally asked them to help in finding um, victims that could testify potentially in court cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one thing that people who view this as a very stark China versus Japan thing or might view these people as, you know, maybe sort of tools of propaganda on either side uh, fail to realize is the, the collaboration between the Chinese and the Japanese. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, there are an awful lot of people on the Japanese left who, who see this as an important, uh, vital issue, uh, really kind of for for the good of Japan, right, I mean, to, to have a reckoning with this. Yeah, that's my understanding. I mean, again, I focus very much on right. the Chinese side. Um, but the Chinese, some of the Chinese activists kind of view themselves as being on a mission to heal Japan, which you know, maybe <laughs> comes across as a bit annoying in Japan, I can I can well imagine. Um, but, but you know, they do seem to have that very genuine uh, political goal as part of their, you know, there's a whole spectrum of goals that you run into, but that's one of them. What really stood out about your story, of course, is that you found this uh, survivor. Um, can you tell me how you... you how you located her? her name was Zhang. I'm sorry, I don't know the term. Zhang Xiantu. Xiantu, okay. Yeah. Zhang and, uh, so she, um, there aren't many left now. I guess there's roughly dozen so, yeah. two dozen. Okay. Um, so some 22 or 23 ladies. And as you can imagine, you know, most of them are very, well, they're all very old, and some are in very poor health. Um, some live very remote areas, and, and pretty much all of them speak dialects that would be a struggle. 
Um, Where did Zhang Xintu actually live? She lived in Shanxi province, lives in lives. Shanxi province. So um, this place, Yu County in Shanxi province, there, there are two areas in China. One is Hainan Island and the other is Yu County, where the vast majority of publicly acknowledged comfort women live mm-hmm. or lived. Uh, and that's largely due to the local groups of activists in those two areas who decided to ferret them out. Um, so this lady, this corner of Yu County, it's it's our U, corner of Shanxi Province called Yu County, uh, is borders on Hebei, very close to Beijing, um, and it was an area that was fought over quite a lot between the Kuomintang, the communists, and the uh, Japanese. That mm. so changed hands several times. The front was very messy. Um, you know, obviously there were the villages. Rape and pillage was quite common in these villages. Um, so so it's. Kind of different than you know many of the major cities in China. You had the initial takeover by Japanese forces, and then you know a more stable period under the occupation, perhaps. Whereas some parts of the countryside went back and forth quite a lot. She tells the harrowing story about how she was actually taken uh, as a girl of sixteen in what nineteen forty six. At forty two. I'm sorry, that's right. 19, couldn't have been forty six. Right, nineteen forty two. Um, I was thinking the number sixteen somehow. So that that puts her at what she was born in in then nineteen six. Uh, oh God! Yeah, she would have been born in twenty six, I guess. Right. Um, right. So she's about eighty eight now. She's 80. actually uh, she had bound feet, right? Yes, she yeah. did. So yeah. she, um, I, I believe that many of the comfort women in China, I guess in Korea as well, uh, were often very poor people who were, you know, naturally more vulnerable than everyone else. Um, but in her case, actually, her father was he owned a bit of land and he had a a sheep, um, you know, a herd of sheep. So within the context of that village and that area, he was reasonably well off. Um, mm. I mean, super not not super wealthy, but wealthy enough to bind his daughter's to feet, for instance. Feet, right. uh, bind his daughter's feet, actually, after 1912, which is uh, a little rarer. Yeah, well, side issue. countryside, it still went on, right? Yeah, sort of a side issue. It's funny that in many areas, even as the rest of China gave up binding feet, in sort of remote areas, people just were starting because it was a status symbol. Mm. And so they were still kind of 30 years behind the trend. Um, anyway, side note, but she is one of them. And did you locate her through Kangjian or did you locate it through? Uh, no, actually, we went through other activists to meet uh, Mr. Zhang Shuangbing, and he's the school teacher. Uh, he's, you know, he was a local boy, graduated from probably junior high or maybe high school in the Cultural Revolution, went back home, became a teacher himself, you know, as people did if they had any education at all. Um, and he uh, was very moved one day because he was walking to school and he saw this really old lady harvesting a field by herself. And, you know, that was just hugely unusual in the countryside where people had large families still at the time. Um, and you hadn't, the migration hadn't started to the city. So old people, you know, you wouldn't see an old person struggling alone. So he was so moved, he helped her. And then he went back and helped her again and again and gradually found out that she'd been through this horrible circumstance um, and that kind of piqued his interest. And uh, so he started just bicycling around his county, and he'd go into a village and be like, hey, you know, is there anyone here who kind of disappeared during the war? Or, you know, I mean, people would gossip about these ladies in a very unpleasant way. Um, but he felt very compassionate for them, and so he had this dossier of these women he had identified. At the time, he had started a local history association. I think they were also looking into other issues. Um, But then this issue became sort of his life's passion. Um, And uh, and then when the reparations movement broke out, as I mentioned, when the emperor was visiting, um, his local paper just put a tiny little notice at the bottom of one article saying, 
by the way, there's this manifesto on reparations. And he wrote a letter. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, the people who had been starting the reparations movement suddenly, you know, they were getting letters of support from around the country. But suddenly they get this letter from this, you know, rural school teacher saying, you know, (laughs) I have a list of 120 women who have suffered terribly under these specific circumstances. There were that many of them that he had. He had 126 in U County and then a corner of Hebei that was just bordering it. My God. Yeah. So is there an estimate for how many total women had been pressed into sexual slavery during this period? So like everything to do with World War II, uh, this is hugely controversial. Of course. Um, the, uh, there was a UN report that I think estimated up to 200,000, and that's the Korean scholars' estimate. Um, and they based that on Japanese war records. Um, and, you know, it sounds kind of grotesque now, but there were sort of formulas that the Japanese army was using to How say, many prostitutes per... Right, we platoon, need this many right. for this size of a platoon. And so people have tried to triangulate off that. I mean, obviously, it's a... You know, there's a lot of debate, which, again, I didn't go into we about how accurate that this was, There was nothing remotely prostitute about this. Right? I mean, um, No, but that's how the Japanese army considered right, it, right? right. Um, but, you know, if you triangulate off that, of course, then you get into the problem of, on the one hand, you know, death from abuse and disease was very, very high. Mm. Um, on the other hand... You know, it's not necessarily true that just because the central planners think you need this many people, you need this many people, right? So um, these numbers are all estimates, um, and it's hugely complicated, of course, by the fact that, first of all, so many people died. Secondly, after the war, everything was in such chaos. And third, there are very few people who, especially at that time, would have said, oh, by the way, I was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, uh, and then the Koreans really started this movement to recognize um, these comfort women's plight uh, because many of them were never married or were so damaged internally they could never bear children. And so as they became older, um, they had no source of support. Was this the case with with Zhang Xian too? No, actually, she was married already. Okay. Um, and her husband kind of went mad when the Japanese raided their house. And he was only 13. He was younger than her, mm-hmm. than she uh, and um, so when she was ransomed by her father, her husband was in no state either. He was in this sort of state of temporary madness. Um, so while her family was nursing her back to health, his family was managing him. Um, but then, you know, they were married, so they stayed married for the rest of their lives, and they had two sons at least. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, everybody's experience was hugely different. So I'm, I'm curious what happened to Zhang Chongbing. So he comes to... Uh, Beijing with 126 names on his list, and, and he begins making the case for reparations. So this part gets pretty murky, okay. um, and this is where the activists get a little vague. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, as I understand it, the uh, Tongzhen, this other activist who had started the reparations call, somehow hooked up with activists in Japan who were hoping to use this issue mm-hmm. um, and, and open it up. And he then, Tong Zhen, was able to say, you know, I have this appalling case and these, you know, testimonies and all that, because one of the problems with war atrocities is proving them. Um, so ultimately, there were th- uh, several lawsuits in Japan, but the ones involving the Chinese, uh, there were three from Yu County, hmm. which were ladies that had been, <clears throat> you know, identified by Zhang Shuangbing, but then later followed up with, with other people. Um, and one case involving women in Hainan, uh, and that was the one where Kang Jian had taken the depositions. 
Um, and the women in Hainan, I think one of the reasons that as a cluster they survived was actually um, a lot of them were ethnic minorities from tribes in the mountains. Uh-huh. And so some ethnic minority members of the CPPCC from their uh, you know, people or tribe uh, were the ones who had formed this, had formed a group in Hainan to expose their plight. Right, and then um, taken it to, to Beijing initially? Or? Again, like, yeah, had linked up somehow. Um, at the time, you know, there was this movement also to find uh, men who had been tricked into being forced laborers in Japan. So Japan had a, such a major labor shortage because of the number of soldiers deployed uh, that they were bringing laborers in from China and Korea as well. Um, so that's another another area which, again, I didn't go into because, you know, at 2,500 words, you can't. But there's a whole other area to be explored of, you know, these men who worked in Japan, uh, again, under very Just grueling. conscript labor. From, pretty right, much, right, right. grueling conditions. And um, in one case, there was even a rebellion. They rebelled at some mine where many of them shot. Um, so, and and the reason that, and this is sort of a side issue again, but the reason that was something the Japanese activists focused on was when they were repatriated to Japan, there was a list. There was a list of, I think, 6,000 names that the Japanese government said, okay, we've repatriated these 6,000 people, and here's their home address. Um, and so there was somebody, there was something to work off of in that case. Um, now, of course, in the intervening 70 years, or in that case, 50, since the 90s, uh, you know, people had moved, people had died, names are doubled up, you mm-hmm. know, all things that happened. But um, that's why the forced laborer cases for both China and Korea have a bit of a stronger, you know, legal and evidentiary backing. Right, backing. Right, because it's not solely based on the person's testimony. Okay. So then uh, what happened? I mean, why why were the Japanese court? what was the ostensible reason that the Japanese courts uh, ended up uh, not granting reparations for for these comfort women cases that had been brought against them? Oh, there were a number of reasons. And again, I don't want to be too precise for fear of making a mistake, but uh, they boldly, roughly boiled down to statute of limitations Mm -hmm. because, you know, you're bringing a suit in the late 90s for something that happened in the early 40s. Um, And then the second issue was, does an individual or a foreign individual have the right to sue the state? Um, And so some court, some judges found that, you know, under our legal code, no, you don't. But, you know, this is a political issue. It should be solved politically. I mean, is there any kind of precedent-based law? I don't know the Japanese legal code at all, of course. But, I mean, to think that that they would grant reparations for uh, a a ship, uh, shipping, uh, to a shipping company that had seized uh, a guy's ship. Yeah, uh, that, those I'm those was awarded by a Chinese court. Oh, it was awarded by a Chinese yeah, court. Yeah, it was see, awarded by a Chinese see, court. See, so in that case, the shipping case, the Chinese family, you know, they fled Shanghai. Uh, they got to Hong Kong. They attempted to sue in Japan, actually. And I think their suit lasted for 20 years, give or take. Hmm. Um, and then when that didn't work, then they went back to Chinese courts. But again, you can see... it. They made progress when China, Sino-Japanese relations were poor. So they, you know, registered their suit when it was poor. Then everything stopped. Then, you know, relations got bad again. Their suit moved forward. Relations improved. Their suit froze again. Um, so you definitely see any of these individual claimants are always uh, always subject to the uh, fluctuations in the Sino-Japanese sure, relationship. Sure. Uh, I, one thing that I think is, is is fairly obvious to anybody who follows this is that there are different 
types of, of activism that are and are not allowed, even within uh, sort of the broader category of anti-Japanese uh, pursuit of, of, of reparations. Um, for example, you, you talk about all these people who were forced laborers, and they haven't uh, allowed that to go forward quite as much. It, what, what determines whether Beijing allows uh, a certain type of, of pursuit of, of, of justice against Japan, of reparations and so forth? What, what seems to be the determining factors behind that? Well, so far, the main case has been the shipping case, and there it was a very limited case, right? They had the original contract. Uh, there was no doubt that it was a valid contract, um, and there aren't that many just commercial disputes out there. So that Exactly two or three. Right, two or three, three, right. So yeah. Beijing could simultaneously, you know, award a case against Japan, but at the same time not have it impact the broader relationship. It's, it's nice and contained. Right? Exactly, it's right. totally contained. Whereas something like forced laborers, you've got the problem that, you know, if you go forward on force people who are forced to lurk in Japan, then what about Chinese who are forced to work in Japanese operations or mines in what's now mainland China? And if you say that those people have a claim, then what about the millions of Chinese who've been forced to labor under the communist regime since 1949? <laughs> um, and, and then that opens the much, much broader oppression of, you know, tens of millions of Chinese have died in political purges, in fam- man-made famines, you know, millions more have basically so everybody lost this property. This is that surrounding countryside that are so determined not to allow to catch fire. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you really don't want to go there if you're China having too much um, airing of historical grievance. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a, an attempt to keep it targeted and contained. So I want to be mindful of your time here. I know you need to scoot off to, to a, a dinner with your editor. What... Um, uh, during the course of reporting this, surely you uh, some some things surprised you. you probably came in. I'm I'm assuming with uh, some assumptions that were that you dropped later on, or that you you found that you were, were challenged. What surprised you in the course of reporting this story? I mean, the main thing is that I had always equated these issues with solely being you know China stirring things up against Japan, um, or you know, to, uh, on the flip side, the way some people say, oh, you know, the Japanese refuse to acknowledge. And you find out that it's a much, much more complex case. And uh, Japanese society is extraordinarily complex, and people have a huge range of experiences and attitudes that are in no way reflected in Chinese propaganda. Um, and on the Chinese side, um, it's not all driven by the state, you know, and, and what really really intrigued me was the dedication of these activists, their passion and commitment to something that was sometimes flavorful, but often not. Mm-hmm. And also the comfort women themselves are always portrayed as, you know, these poor, frail victims. victims. And, and, you know, I sort of realized when I met Zhang Xiantu, who, you know, was obviously a very tough lady and um, very warm, seemed like a very warm person, was that, you know, the the women who had chosen to come forward against the thousands or hundreds of thousands, who knows, who remain silent, is, you know, people who who are activists in their own right, who for whatever reason stood up and said, uh, you know, I want to make this case even if it means embarrassment for me or my family. Um, and, and so I think you have to give credit to them as well. You can't just say, oh, you know, they're sort of these passive victims. Um, and that, w- that was definitely a surprise for me. That's wonderful. Um, great story, uh, and I, I really do hope you put up a link to that other story about the sh- the, the, the shipping family. That that was it's really a, a gigantic surprise to, to hear about and hearing about it for the first time. Um, let's now quickly uh, go to recommendations. 
Do you have something that you'd like to recommend for our listeners this week? Well, uh, on the sort of comfort woman issue, there is some literature out there, but I'll let people find it themselves because yeah, it's so Lucy, fraught. Lucy, you're probably very wise not to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and on in general, I think one book that I really enjoyed reading and often go back to is something called Two Kinds of Time. Uh, it was actually written by a, an OSS, which was the equivalent of CIA, CIA right. officer. Donovan, yeah. yeah, and he was stationed in China during the Second World War. And he, his dispatches were obviously be, very colorfully written. When he got back to America, he collated them into a book because he wanted to express his opinions as to why um, Asia had been, quote-unquote, or China had been, quote-unquote, lost to the communists. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And, of course, the book was immediately suppressed by the U.S. government, and he died shortly thereafter of cancer. Um, But the book was republished about six or seven years ago. And to me, it's just fascinating because, obviously, there was the war situation, but in many other ways, China is quite recognizable to those of us who live here today. Um, And I think it also gives a huge amount of perspective to see these things not through a black-and-white eye, not through a sort of propagandist view now of what things were like then, but to see the complexity of China in the 40s as it was experienced then. Um, and from there, you can kind of extrapolate, in, in many cases, to the China of today. Um, and so it's, it's a book that I would definitely recommend to anybody, uh, a bit off from the normal normal list, but um, very, very interesting, I think. Do you remember the author's name by any chance? Graham Peck. Peck, right. Yeah. Graham Peck, right. Two kinds of time. That I, it's been on my list for a while, and I don't know why it is that I've somehow managed to forget to do it. It's very thick, which might be daunting, but it, it's an easy read. Okay, great. Um, my recommendation has to do, of course, with the passing uh, this morning as on the day that we're recording here. Uh, it's uh, the uh, 23rd of uh, Singapore's great minister and mentor, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Um, this was uh, a Facebook friend of mine posted this in response to um, when I would posted the, the New York Times obituary. Uh, it's an interview with Lee on uh, the uh, the NBC, I think it was NBC show, Meet the Press, that was taped in 1967. Uh, it's he, He's very um, feisty. He, he, he's uh, challenging the American uh, position on the Vietnam War, of course, which is, is really quite, it's going on quite hotly in 67 already. Uh, really interesting interview. The guy is a uh, uh, bright, articulate, forceful, and uh, this is, uh, just check it out. It's on YouTube. All you need to do is just search for Interview with Lee Kuan Yew um, and maybe meet the press and you'll find it. It's uh, fascinating. It's, it's fairly brief. It's 20 minutes or so, but um, check it out. And uh, Lucy, thanks so much for finally coming in and talking about and you, what Kevin. a great story that was. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we could get you in finally. And I look forward to having you again uh, next time you got something good cooking. (laughs) Oh, we'll let you know. Uh, Please do. And uh, thank you, faithful listeners. And we will see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care. (laughs) 